Hello, and welcome to the London Writer Salon podcast. I'm Matt. And I'm Parle. And each week we sit down with a writer that we admire to talk about the craft of writing and the art of building a successful and sustainable writing career. These interviews are recorded live with our global writing community. If you would like to join us for the next recording or write with us at our daily Writer's Hour writing sessions, head to LondonWritersSalon.com for more information. When Natasha was a young American TV producer, she was chosen to lead a crew to create the Russian adaptation of Sesame Street. And this was after the collapse of the Soviet Union in the early 90s. And her award-winning memoir, Muppets in Moscow, tells a story of cultural clashes and the challenging and dangerous endeavor of bringing a beloved Western show to Russian children. And so in this conversation with the TV producer and writer, Natasha Rogoff, we discuss her filmmaking career. We talk about the mechanics of a global TV series, what makes Sesame Street so successful, and the driving force behind creating art in dangerous circumstances. We also look at resources Natasha used to learn how to write her memoir, her award-winning memoir. And we asked for tips for how writers can extend their reach and resources for early career filmmakers. Natasha opened us up to her world of documentary filmmaking, memoir, and art as a force for good. And so without further ado, we hope you enjoy our conversation with Natasha Rogoff. And if you're loving these conversations and want to help support the podcast, please rate and review us wherever you listen to us. Each month, we give away prizes to our reviewers, things like mugs and stickers and other goodies. Plus, it's just a nice way to show us your love and to help keep us going. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome to the London Writer Salon, Natasha. So happy to be And Elmo. <laughs> and Elmo. <laughs> and Elmo with you both, Matt and Pro. And thank you so much uh, for inviting me. And I'm really looking forward to the conversation today. Uh, well, thank you. It's so great to have you here. And I think the connective tissue between us, which is Marty, who we interviewed a couple of years ago, uh, I think Marty is here as well. So thank you, Marty, for introducing Natasha and bringing her into our life. So Natasha, we'd like to rewind the clock and start with your origin story as a creator. What was your relationship with writing or maybe broadly creating growing up as a kid? I was born in a in New York, just outside, first born in New York City. And then my parents moved outside of the city. And I am from a family with four siblings and we're all a year apart. So it was pretty hectic. And in my family growing up, we were always listening to a lot of records, mostly opera and musicals. And I was a big reader at the time. I mean, I was one of these quiet kids, quite different from my siblings. And then as we got older, you know, you had a couple choices in your career options. And in our household, it was, you know, you had to do something that would create a secure living. So you could be a doctor, a lawyer, or a business person. That was about it. <laughs> so... You know, I, I was definitely intrigued by film and uh, writing from a really early age and started writing stories, I think, from about age 10. So that's kind of how it started. And then I kept a journal, as many aspiring writers do, you know, cringeworthy writing when you look back on it today. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I'm curious, what was your first paid job in media? First paid job was writing freelance. I had moved to Russia when I was 22 as part of a U.S.-Soviet exchange program. We had 30 students in what was then Leningrad, now St. Petersburg, and 30 in Moscow. So it was a program set up through the university where I went. I went to Berkeley in California. And while there, I started writing about underground culture, underground rock and roll musicians, the LGBTQ community. As a young person in the city, was very moved by the, the ways in which I saw how artists were you know, persecuted under communism. So I started writing about that and publishing articles and was very surprised you know, that you would get a check you know, some months later. <laughs> so that was the first first paid gig was writing freelance. And then I eventually got a job working 
at the lowest level at CBS News in Washington, D.C., while I was waiting for a security clearance to work for the government, the U.S. government, a clearance I did not get, which I write about in the book. And then I I went back to Russia several times afterwards because I was just fascinated by this culture and the people. And I got jobs as a fixer. And what that is, is somebody, a producer, director who's making documentary films for like Channel 4, the BBC. Mostly it was European companies. And they would hire me to do whatever they asked me to do and help them make their films. This later led to my eventually directing my own films. But initially, that's how I started. Mm. I'm curious because there's a if there's one through line through your work, it's certainly a fascination with the Russian and Soviet culture. Where did that love begin for you or that curiosity? Was it in that first job or did it begin earlier from that? And do you remember that first moment that you fell in love? Yeah, no, much earlier, Matt. I mean, my my grandfather left Belarusia in 1912 and he lived until the mid 1970s so of course i had heard stories about where we were from and he had you know this different accent he spoke yiddish and russian didn't usually speak russian and he used to sing this song you know i don't even know where this is from but volga boat man you know and it, I just was really intrigued with where we were from. And I think for many kids, when they feel kind of isolated or sort of different from other other kids, they try to understand where are they from, you know, what makes them different. And um, certainly my brothers and sisters don't speak Russian, but I, you know, from a very young age was reading a lot of literature, Milan Kundera, you know, the whole East European writers, Gogol, Dostoevsky, I mean, the absurdist stories really appealed to me. Somehow they seemed to capture life more authentically than other stories or television that my peers were watching. I didn't like the Disney movies. I didn't, you know, there were many things that were the topic of conversation among my peers, but I, I wasn't that interested in it. That's really interesting. And this leads us to what is the body of your work today. A lot of your background is in working in Russia. And so now we're going to talk a little bit about the Muppets of Moscow and really the business of TV. And what strikes me about reading your memoir is that this dawning realization of how important a role you played in the actually the history of television. In your book, you talk about the story of how you're running this production really in a covert war zone. You know, you were fighting to get money. The government was conspiring against you and you were trying your best to stay afloat to keep the production going. And of course, the story is now today is that Alutsa Sazam, which I may be pronouncing incorrectly, became an unprecedented hit across Russia. So this is Sesame Street. You know, you produced 52 half-hour episodes broadcast over two years. It reached millions of children and it was a big deal. And I would love to understand from you just really to help us understand the impact of Sesame Street in Russia. Could you tell us a little bit about what Russian children's TV looked like before Sesame Street arrived and maybe how it's changed since? Well, first, your pronunciation is perfect. So Ulitsa Sizam, which means Sesame Street in Russia. And the situation, when I was first approached to help Sesame Workshop, then called Children's Television Workshop, it's a nonprofit to bring the Muppets to Moscow. This was two years after the Soviet Union had collapsed. So it was a really historic moment when, you know, we had the U.S. and Russia had been battling and, you know, spending billions on defense to prevent communism from spreading. And there was so much hope in this time that Russia had the potential to join the free world and this project, which was spearheaded originally by then Senator Biden and the U.S. Congress with additional matching funding from Russian sources, the idea was that the Muppets would represent idealistic values and be able to model the skills that young children would need to thrive in this new, open, more tolerant, freer Russian society. 
But at the same time, it was an incredibly violent and volatile time where you had a system that had been a command economy and centralized for years suddenly fall apart. It was as if it was imploding. And there was really not a strong leader. You know, Yeltsin wasn't well. He was a great leader for what he did and Gorbachev as well in terms of opening the country up. But nobody, including the United States or Western Europe, really knew how to transition this monolithic society that, you know, covered 11 time zones from this Soviet period to this more democratic period including the new independent countries like Ukraine and Georgia, Armenia. So it was into this environment that, you know, I came in with the hopes that we could make this TV show. But everything had changed from the period that I had already been there. I had already been there 10 years making documentaries and films and writing and working for news. But it wasn't the same country. And I don't think I understood that and totally underestimated the challenges that we would face. So that was the situation. And what television was like at that time, if you consider where they were just before the Soviet Union collapsed, they had incredible children's television. The artists, the animators, the storytellers were world-renowned. Their animated cartoons were seen all over the world. And it was mostly cell animation. So hand-drawn cell animation, not computer animation, which had already been adopted by Disney and much of the West. But the state owned all television. There were no cable channels. There was no, you know, independent stations. So similar to there being no free press, it was the same for all entertainment. We came in literally two years after that. (laughs) So the whole thing was getting blown open with new independent stations, the introduction of cable for the first time, the introduction of advertising for the first time ever. That's 1992-93. So there was one caveat, which was, although under the Soviet Union, All television was under the control of censors, and it was used primarily for propaganda. And the only advertising would be advertising the great proletarian revolution or the tractor driver. So it was it was not really for products. But children's television was had been left alone a little bit. It was kind of a ghetto, a little bit free of censorship. So the people that were really creative could be found in this ghetto. And they were absolutely brilliant. So we ended up inviting a lot of those people to come in and join our team. We also drew on theater and film, the cinematographers, the, you know, everybody who was shooting on film to come join us. Why was that? Because television did not have the same sophistication at that time that it did in the United States. The techniques that were being used to create television were not nearly as sophisticated because TV was not used for entertainment, but for propaganda. That said, filmmaking in Russia was absolutely brilliant. And anybody who goes to film school anywhere, one of the first films they see is, you know, Battleship Potemkin or, you know, Eisenstein's films. So we pulled all those people together and then there was support to train them in the approaches of modern television, three camera shoots, synchronized audio recording, things like that. So fascinating. And in addition to this being, which we'll talk about in a moment here, a dangerous time to create art and a dangerous environment in which to do it. You professionally, this was also your first time producing children's TV before. Oh, yeah. I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah. Which is interesting. Yeah. And so I guess maybe just to give us a little, for those of us who don't know anything about what a TV producer does, can you tell us what was a day in the life of a producer on the set of Sesame Street for you? Sure. I had actually, I thought about it because um, 
I was thinking, how do I like break it down? So it's really understandable. But essentially, I put this together, which was, you know, essentially building the team, raising financing for the TV series, finding a broadcaster, reporting back to your bosses, managing people, and the creative vision and having responsibility for the TV series, developing the educational content for the show, the curriculum training the team of writers, animators, filmmakers, puppeteers, reviewing all scripts, storyboards, musical compositions, animations, short live action films, and providing notes in Russian to the artists, conceptualizing, designing, and building the set. Of course, we had to create an original neighborhood for Ulitsa Sazam, which was based on their own values and culture and folklore. The same is true. We built original Muppets that were based on Russian folklore and aesthetics, casting costumes, hair and makeup, set decoration, importing equipment. That was a big one. Training how to use the equipment, <laughs> training your team how to use computers, rehearsals with actors, directing and filming. And while all of this is going on, you are simultaneously in post production, editing as things are being finished, to package the show and then air it. What a skill set. So not much then. You didn't have much much to do. It's like you're the CEO, the manager of this whole production. That's what I was thinking. Really? Exactly. Well, I've always thought that, you know, the directors and the, the producers of any type of, you know, film or TV is kind of like being a general in a war, except nobody dies. <laughs> Hopefully nobody dies, but I guess there are cases. Usually. doesn't seem like you had that the benefit of that experience. So we'll dig into that in a moment too. No. The thing that struck us, Natasha, about, you know, reading about how you launched Sesame Street in Russia was that we didn't really understand how this works on a global scale. This idea of a show becoming a series, so a US show, and then moving to a global series. So we're just curious about the mechanics of what happens when something goes global is Sesame Street franchised out? Is that how it works? Who owns it? And how does it work to have a production across multiple countries? Because you obviously worked in Mexico, Sesame Street in Mexico, as well as Russia. Anything you can tell us about that? Sure. I mean, the Sesame Workshop is a nonprofit which licenses the format in the same way that other shows, you know, other entertainment shows like Big Brother or Survivor licensed shows. But it then is not a direct import because it's very much modified by the culture in which you're working. And also, it's the local team that creates the show. When I was describing everything that needs to happen to create a new TV show, this only can happen if you have the team. And on for Ulitsa Sazam, we had over 400 Moscow artists working on this show from Russia, Ukraine, Georgia, Armenia, and the team of veteran Sesame Street people who had been making Sesame Street, some going back to having worked with Jim Henson, who then came to Russia to train the team in Moscow. It was a huge collaborative undertaking. So it's not so much that it's a franchise because nobody's essentially buying it. You have to raise the money for each show. Often it comes from philanthropic sources or from the government where the Ministry of Education, where you're working, or their state TV agency. So I think the adaptation of the show is very much tailored to each country. And then the content is very different because every country's culture is so different. This is also true for the set. So for instance, in Norway, the set where the studio filming takes place is a train station. In Mexico, for Plaza Sesamo, it's a, a plaza, like a, you know, a, a public area. In South Africa, it's a marketplace. And in the Russian series, which I write about in the book, it is a dvor, which means a courtyard. And that is a traditional area which has lasted from pre-revolutionary times where people lived and gathered. 
although the conception of what this public space is used for changed from pre-revolutionary Russia to communism to uh, post-Soviet society. It was really interesting for us to hear about the sort of considerations and conflicts that existed as you were adapting, creating Sesame Street to fit the locale. And it seemed to me there was a constant tension between the vision of Sesame Street, the ethos of Sesame Street, and what the local artists felt was true to their uh, view of the world and the sort of message that they wanted to impart. I'm curious if you can give us any insight into what those writing and brainstorming sessions looked like, particularly when there was so much conflict. How did you come to an agreement as to which type of Muppets should be included or characters should be included and what kind of message was acceptable? Well, Parole, since you started with the Muppets, I'll just talk about that first. You know, I had initially thought going over there that everybody loves the Muppets. They're cute. You know, they have these big eyes and, you know, they're adorable. And they were uh, totally innovation, you know, total innovation of what a puppet could look like. Absolutely, you know, brilliant by Jim Henson. And I was really surprised because I showed different Muppets, both the American Muppets and then some of the Muppets from other countries to give my colleagues an idea of what they look like so that they could begin thinking about what they wanted their own Slavic style Muppets to look like. And, you know, when I showed it to them, the head writer said, well, we don't really like those Muppets and we want to use our own puppets. And then she was kind of curt and said, you know, we have our own tradition, Natasha, dating back to the 16th century of our own revered puppetry. And we want to use our puppets, not those funny looking puppets. So that was the starting point. And I was just like, oh, that was not where I expected the, you know, one of the problems would come from. I did expect that there would be other differences. For instance, when we were having curriculum discussions in a three-day seminar, we were talking about what are ways that you could introduce this new style open market, you know, free market, not a command system, not state-owned means of production, you know, to young children. And of course, you think about things like, well, what about, I said, showing children running a lemonade stand? I mean, we, that's, you know, something common in America. And my colleagues were just horrified by this. You know, you mean children selling things on the streets? And then, you know, someone else stands up and said, the only people who sell things on the streets are criminals and mafia. And of course, they were right. You know, I mean, I this was just two years after the Soviet Union had collapsed or a few years. And so the people who would be selling things or engaging in independent commerce under communism would be prosecuted for speculation because it wasn't allowed. So there were many times when this happened. And, you know, you asked also about the writing. The writing was extremely problematic in the beginning because our head writer, the first head writer who was hired, insisted on hiring only children's authors who were members of the Soviet Union of Writers. So initially they were absolutely brilliant writers, but they would, instead of submitting a script that was like three pages long and comedy oriented, you know, with, with punchlines and all kinds of things, they'd submit like a 10 or 20 page script that was not fun to read. And it wasn't funny. And then, um, you know, we had one writer who he submitted a storyboard teaching the letter D for depression. <laughs> so we had a, a lot of discussions. But at the same time, I had to respect what the writers were saying, which is, you know, your show, your American show is very fast paced, too fast for our children where we are right now. We want our show to be less using slapstick humor than what they called laughing between tears. So in this process, we learned from each other what that actually meant. And, you know, an example of this with a script is there was one script where we were teaching the idea of happy versus sad. And in this script, there's a little boy and little girl walking in the park holding a balloon. They each have a balloon. 
and the little boy lets go of his balloon and he starts crying and he's just very sad. And there are no words in this. It's just actions. And the little girl looks at him and she lets go of her balloon too. And then the two of them hold hands watching the balloons go up into the sky. And when I read the storyboard, I'm looking at it. I'm like, well, that's strange. Why don't they just share the other balloon? (laughs) And my colleagues were laughing at me and they go, no, you don't understand. They're both happy experiencing this moment of joy together and experiencing the beauty together, watching the balloons go up into the sky. So I took that as, oh, they're having this moment of joy together and having nothing together. But that was a cultural difference. And I understood where they were coming from. Such a subtle shift. Yeah. And yet it makes sense when you explain it. Mm. So very touching. But it was incredible working with this team of artists. It was really, you know, we had, we were working with some of the most talented people in Russia, you know, from all the different regions, because there was nothing else going on in terms of production then. There was no state budget for television production of, you know, shows and entertainment. So we had this sense of tremendous responsibility and people had really high expectations of how this show could help their children and help the next generation in figuring out how to be happy, successful, experiment, play, you know, in this new society that was in the process of creating itself from scratch. Mm. And I mean, Parl and I, we were talking about this beforehand, and the two of us are children of Sesame Street. Parl watching it in New Zealand, me watching it in the States. I'm sure a lot of people listening, watching here have a, a history with Sesame Street, whether they consciously remember it or not. And it's impacted us in ways we might never really totally understand. But you did some study around Sesame Street before you took on the role. What's your sense or what was your sense on the winning formula of that show? Because it did seem to to really connect with kids in particular. Were there certain magic ingredients that you thought this show had that maybe other forms of storytelling or other shows for children maybe miss the mark? Hmm. That's a good question. I think, you know, first, what it has is heart. Most of all, Sesame Street has heart and great comedy and great music. Many of the top musicians in New York supported themselves because they got gigs at Sesame Street between, you know, their concerts and everything else or writing music. And it was very innovative. It was challenging a lot of boundaries and taboos in its time. I think that's one factor that made it very successful. And the other is that the writing of the scripts was really written on two levels. And that's complicated in terms of writing. You're writing for adults, but you're also writing for children. And you have to make it funny for both levels. That's more common today, you know, in family films. That's very common today. But I really think that Sesame Street is perfected that, invented, perfected that in the beginning. And I think that had a huge factor as well. And I'd say the third thing is how sensitive Sesame Street is to other cultures, not expecting the culture to mirror its own, but to be willing, as the Muppets are, to learn and experiment and figure out what works, you know, for each society. So essentially, what makes it great is following the guidelines and directions from the Muppets themselves. Wonderfully summed up. Thank you for that. We're going to turn to your process of writing this and turning this into a memoir in a moment. But one final question, because we can't we can't leave this out, is that so much of your journey in creating this and you, you and your team was you're essentially creating art in dangerous times. It was a dangerous environment. And the first sign of danger that you encountered in Moscow was when a, a Russian investor is attacked. He survives the bomb blast. But then later on, people involved with the show are, are actually murdered. And, you know, it's it's so it feels easy to create things reflecting on your experience when we're in safety, you know, when there's not danger around us. But you you kept going despite this danger. What compelled you to stay in Russia 
to pursue this project? What was driving you to press on and maybe you and your team? Was it helping Russia shift these values into a new country? Was it something else intrinsic that was driving you? Well, I think it was, uh, you know, the deaths that you're talking about were very personal to all of us on our team. And, you know, our first investor's car was blown up in a car bombing. And I had been in that car three weeks before concluding a deal with that sponsor. And, you know, that was pretty shocking, but it was happening to many oligarchs at the time. But what was more disheartening, and I would say, really made me question, you know, it just felt too close for comfort was when there was a a really great man who had been working to create a free press in Russia. And he was incredibly brave. He was at the studio. His name is uh, Vlad Listyev. And he had been my confidant and my colleague, Leonid, who I worked with, our confidant, advising us, you know, kind of how to navigate the television industry, which was really feudalistic, you know, to understand who controlled what and who should we go to talk to to try to find a broadcaster. And he had been very generous with his time and was so supportive. And then what became the head of the TV station in Russia, it was the largest television station in Russia. It's still the largest television station in Russia, ORT. And he was at the studio one day doing his show. He had a talk show, kind of like Larry King. And he left and was shot in front of his house and he died. So that was, you know, for our team. And basically the entire TV station went dark the next day. There was just a placard on the screen that said Vlad Listyev has been murdered. And all the programming was canceled and everybody was crying. I mean, it was like a really amazing person. Russia has lost so many of these people who have been fighting, you know, the repressive regime and the cyclical repressive regime and the the blood, the blood uh, history that it's just, you know, phenomenal. And this happened again nine months later with the next head of the TV station who was also going to air our show. So, you know, it wasn't your typical children's TV production, as you say, Matt, you know, but I think these stories may help people understand why I couldn't leave. I mean, I had built this team. This team had become my family. I was responsible for holding this thing together. And, you know, as I (laughs) tell the incredible things that happen in this book, you know, besides people getting assassinated, there's... If I left at that time, there was enough capital in people wanting to cancel the production because of these events that were happening that it may have been canceled. And I understood that. So it would have been a very selfish thing to do. And aside from that, I really didn't want to. I mean, I had put so much into this along with, you know, this incredible team of people we really wanted to succeed. If we failed, what would it mean for Russia? What does it say about trying to do things to improve societies if you fail and then you don't? So I think that's mostly why I stayed, but certainly my family and my boyfriend at the time (laughs) didn't have that. They did not share this opinion. Mm. Well, it's, it's very admirable and inspiring to hear you to share all of this and lots of other super interesting stories in the book. So we do encourage everyone to go check it out, Muppets in Moscow. Let's turn to your process of writing this book. So why turn to writing this story 30 years later? I had wanted to write this book 30 years ago. I mean, when we finished the production and it aired, the next day I thought, this is a remarkable story that really needs to be told. You know, a story that this was the show that was supposed to fail, basically, and it didn't. And I even had people come up to me, like the guy who ran Coca-Cola in Russia, and they said to me, you know, we were so stunned that this actually worked. We have so much trouble doing business in Russia. Could you come work for us? And I was like, so you want me to go from creating Sesame Street with this 
you know, incredible team to selling sugary watered drinks to kids. No, I don't think that's going to be happening. But it did reveal to me how truly the business community saw what we were doing was a success to them too, that it actually came to be. So I wanted to tell that story. And what really prompted me to do this, I had written a, a treatment of the book at the time that we finished the show. I gave birth to my son, then I had another baby, and I had written this, this out then. My son had some medical issues. I put it aside. And then in 2016, 17, when I went back to Russia to shoot a short film called Russian Millennials Speak Openly About America, and I made this short, it's like 20 minutes, and it's on YouTube. And I did it because this was after the Trump election, and I really felt that we were misunderstanding who Putin was at the time, and it was dangerous. I had originally wanted to call this film, Hey Trump, Putin is not your bro, <laughs> but I didn't. <laughs> so when I was shooting that, I was also watching a lot of television, and then there were all these shows on Netflix and Amazon. And on every single show that was about the Russians, the person was either a, a thug, an oligarch, a criminal, a prostitute, or a serial killer. And I just thought, wow, you know, this caricatures of these Russian people, that is the only vision that we're seeing, really doesn't ring true to the people that I worked with. You know, these incredibly passionate, committed people making sacrifices to create a different kind of Russia for their country. And it was then that I thought, I really need to tell their stories about this time because we are so misunderstanding this country that we're becoming more isolated from each other and it's getting scarier. Then COVID hit. <laughs> I went back to Russia the last time in January of 2020. And I did interviews for the book with my former colleagues. It took a long time to track everybody down. And in this, at the same time, I had boxes and boxes of materials, which I had moved from house to house as my husband and I moved with our kids. And they took up like half a room. My husband was not very happy about this. But finally, I, I dug into them and I had videotapes, audio tapes, photographs, all the journals that I had from that period. And I started translating and transcribing everything to write the book. And of course, I didn't know I was going to have two years of COVID, but I did. And then I started, I mean, I have a much longer process for how I learned how to write, because obviously I had never written a book before and had made films and written for films, but had never written anything like that. Mm. Yeah, we're curious about that. What sort of resources, books, courses, mentors did you turn to to help you learn that, how to write a book? Well, first I knew that I really knew nothing about writing a memoir. So I started reading a lot of memoirs. Gertrude, Queen of the Desert. What is, actually I wrote down some of them. Nabokov, Speak Memory, Mary Carr's The Art of Memoir, Amy Lamott, then I read Clarissa Ward's book, a lot of war correspondence, so women war correspondence, because I felt like, well, it's kind of in that genre. Martha Gellhorn, Fiona Hill's book, There's Nothing Here for You, Life and Death of Marie Colvin, and all of Ben Mesrich's historical fiction, because he's just an incredible writer. He wrote Social Network. Oh, and especially Bill Browder's book, Red Notice and Freezing Order. So I did all that. And then this sounds really, it's a little embarrassing, but I watched all the masterclass classes on writing. So Neil Gaiman, Margaret Atwood, <laughs> everything. And James Patterson, you know, I took notes on the classes. And of course, the internet didn't exist when I started, you know, when I was first making films, but I was thrilled. I could read all sorts of blogs on writing. And I literally ended up, you know, putting questions in like, how do you write descriptions? <laughs> so, 
<laughs> that is true. And then I reread a lot of the books that I fell in love with in high school, Hemingway, Fitzgerald, and reread those. The next step was figuring out how to write the structure. And I asked friends who had published books and were acclaimed authors like Marty Limbach, who has been on your show. And she recommended a book called Save the Cat. And it was a godsend. That book is was just excellent because it had the combination of the way that you might write a film with writing a book. And that's exactly the intersection that I was looking for. Whereas other books that were more about writing structure were not as helpful to me. And then I did something that I now learn is not how people usually write books, but I created index cards with scenes. And well, first I created a grid, which was 400 pages long, and it had three columns. The first column was everything that happened in Russia historically from 1992 to 96. The next column was every date of everything that happened with our production. So the Sesame Street production in Russia. And then the last column was what are the key turning points or emotionally relevant arc transitions that happen for each major character also in the timeline. Once I had that, then I did the, this may sound like a very strange way of writing a book. Not at all. Then I did the, the index cards with the scenes and got a cork board and started laying out the book on the board, just like you would a film. This is great detail. This is exactly the kind of things that we're all curious about. Yeah. So that's anyway, that's how it did it. And then the most difficult part came, which was writing the book, you know, writing those scenes. And I can't even go into, you know, I did that and I had another list, like I'm really into lists and spreadsheets. <laughs> and so I did another list, which had the every uh, the date and each date I had to finish writing like 2000 words. And I didn't always meet that, of course, but it was like I had a schedule. So that's kind of how it started. It's so fascinating. Can you give us a timeline of what, how long were you spending reading, studying master classes versus the three columns versus then the note cards? What did those look like, timeline like? Well, I would say three months dedicated to learning how to write and reading how do you write a book kind of stuff. <laughs> and then three months of organizational work, you know, prepping everything. So really six months total for that and then starting to write. But I, you know, once I was writing the scenes, I would sometimes stop and read somebody's work. I left out an important thing. At the same time, I was watching a lot of TV in order to de-stress. And so I was watching Queen's Gambit at some point, which I loved. And I loved the writer, Walter Tevis, too. So I ended up reading everything that he wrote. And then I took Queen's Gambit and I broke that down because I knew that the structure was similar to what I was writing. You know, it was kind of like... um a sports event. We were making the TV show, but the idea was you were starting here and you were working with a team and were you going to win the, the tournament? So it was a similar structure to that. So that was very helpful too, because uh, Scott Frank is, you know, he's such a brilliant writer and that was a great TV series. And when the manuscript of the first draft was completed and you had editorial feedback, what kind of notes were you getting and what did you change? Yeah, early on, I gave a very early draft to a developmental editor and, and her notes were really important in that she told me you didn't have enough dialogue. And I realized that I had all the dialogue because the scenes that I was describing, a lot of them were on video too. And so I could go back, but then the publisher required that I get a release form signed for every single quote in the book. And that's like 45 people. And I had to track them down. I was going to cry. I mean, when this happened, I was going to cry. 
And it took an enormous amount of time to find people. Some people were dead, but the people who, it was incredible how many people I did find, some still living in Russia, most in Russia, but then in other countries as well who had left. And that changed the book entirely. Once I realized that I could put dialogue in the book, it just changed it into something else. There's a lot of dialogue in the book. So that's unusual for a a memoir from 30 years ago, because you don't usually have the kinds of primary source materials that I had saved. Normal people, I think, would have thrown those boxes out, is what I think. <laughs> Their kids would have forced them to throw it out. Do you feel vindicated now with your husband? See, there is a reason for all of this. Totally, totally. And I have still, I still have not cleaned up the dining room from when, when my was writing in there. And uh, it's it's been a long time. So kind of chaotic here. I'm curious, Natasha, you know, your the memoir touches a lot upon the business and the reality of creating the show. You do have snippets of personal information in there. How did you decide how much of your personal life to include? That was a really hard, hard part of it. And I ended up taking out an awful lot. It was hard because I didn't want it to be, essentially, you know, I come from a family, my father grew up during the depression and it's not the kind of family that you complain in. And I felt like I didn't want to include my personal life in a way where it was navel gazing or narcissistic or, you know, how do you know what people are interested in? People who love you are interested in more, but readers who you don't know, maybe it's too much. And it was very hard to find where that balance was of what people would want to hear. And I think that we, in talking with my husband too, you know, he also said, maybe you should take this out, you know, or something like that, or when he read a draft. And I think it was supposed, a book that was supposed to be about trying to create something with a team and bridge cultures. And if it was relevant, my personal life to that story, then it could be included. But if it wasn't, then you were going off on a tangent that might be fine if you were writing a different kind of memoir. But this particular memoir was constrained by all the the larger thematic elements that made the book what it is. So helpful. Thank you for that. Just a quick time check. We probably have time for maybe two, maybe three more questions from us, and then we're going to turn it over to everyone here. So if you do have a question for Natasha, now's the time to stick it in the chat and we'll turn to those in a moment. Hello, listeners. Just a note from us at the London Writers' Salon. Our interviews are recorded in front of a live online audience. And so at this point in the interview, we turn to audience questions. Would you like to be a part of the live audience and ask your own questions? Head to londonwriterscellon.com for more information. You can buy tickets to the online events or get free access to them as a member. Now, back to the interview. I'd love to turn to some of your other work, actually. And you mentioned it, the film Russian Millennials Speak Openly About America, which you returned to Russia to film in 2017. It's on YouTube, published it on YouTube, several million views, which is incredible. And I'm curious, those several million views, because there might be people here who maybe have ideas for documentaries they want to shoot. And, you know, obviously not all of it is about eyeballs, but, you know, hopefully you create something, you're trying to change minds, you're trying to introduce people, and hopefully a lot of people watch it. I'm curious, was there something about that film that went viral naturally, or were you doing anything strategically to help? spread the word of that short film? Yeah, I did absolutely nothing, nothing. I wouldn't have known what to do. I mean, this was, I was sort of coming back to film. I had been, uh, you know, producing and directing children's television. And as part of this media company that I created, created a show called Kick and Nutrition, which was a musical comedy cooking show on health education and cooking and eating healthy. So it had nothing to do with it. And then suddenly I went back to Russia, you know, to shoot this thing. And I originally went to network TV because that's how you used to sell your product. 
And they just laughed at me and they, you know, the digital age is here. We don't do that anymore. We don't buy. And then I went, Vice had started. And so I went and spoke with them and tried to get them to take it. And they were like, no, we do all our stuff in-house. So then I put it up on YouTube. The only thing I can guess why it went viral is that there really wasn't, there weren't many people filming in Russia at that time. That was after the invasion of Crimea. And there were few Americans in Russia. And even at the time of the Olympics, Obama was saying, don't go to Russia and, you know, we shouldn't be involved with Russia. So by going back and filming there, there just wasn't that much. That's the only thing I can think of that, you know, people were curious about what was going on in Russia. I don't know. I mean, it's still an mm. Yeah, well, well done anyway. Yeah, we'll make sure to share a link to it. I have a question around the power of storytelling. You know, there are some writers in this room and that will be listening later. And really, we really see that they deeply want to change the world and they want their work to help contribute to that shift. And it feels like such a big question, but any reflections on what it takes for work, whether it's a book, a film, a series, to really shift a culture and help move society in a different direction? What do you think? is behind some art connecting and some art simply not? Well, I think it's very difficult to know what that is. It's very difficult. I mean, there's so many great writers that I'm reading all the time where I think this is phenomenal and they don't have a following because it's just a really difficult time in publishing, in writing to get the word out there. There's so much that's there that it's hard for people to find things. And it's so stratified in terms of the niches and where to look for things. I'm not sure I have a really good answer for that as to, you know, how do you bring your work into the public space and have it get attention? It's still frustrating. I think it's frustrating for me too. And for all the writers, you know, who are friends of mine, whose work is phenomenal, you know, I mean, it's just very difficult to do that. So I don't know, just like the video stuff. I'm not on TikTok. I don't really do much with social media. You're supposed to. I have no idea. Yeah. And that's fair. I, I think that's an absolutely valid answer. But what did strike me about what you said earlier, still in my head, when you talked about Sesame Street having a heart. Yes. And that seems to be such a critical part of Anyone's work that we fall in love with, their heart comes through, their passion, their authenticity comes through. Their passion. I mean, I say this to people that I talk to now always, you know, so much is about other things when you're, you know, looking for career advice. And I, I always tell people, you know, follow your passion. If you love it, if there's something that excites you, and I see that in people's work all the time. So I don't think there's any substitute for that. You know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there are people that use more formulaic approaches to making films or TV series or writing books. But, you know, that certainly wouldn't have worked for me. And I, I don't think I could have had the stamina to write the book if I didn't have this driving desire to tell these stories and get it out of my system. So I think if people feel that and most writers do because it's not the most lucrative business. They're usually driven by passion. So I think you just, it's sometimes it takes a long time. It took me 30 years to write this book. I wanted to write this book when I finished the show. I tried, believe me, it took 30 years to get to this point to write my first book. And just to reflect that, you know, the heart within your works, the heart of what you believe in and the passion has come through to me and it does have an impact. I think the reader feels it. So I, again, urge anyone who's listening to buy this book, Hobbits in Moscow. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for that, Caro. I, you know, I think a lot about the cultural challenges that we faced and another reason why I felt this story resonates now, why I feel it resonates with a lot of readers is we are dealing with a lot of divisions in our own countries in the West. And how do we bridge these cultural differences? So it's kind of a case study of how even more radical divisions between economic systems 
were bridged to create something beautiful together. And that's kind of what I was hoping people would take from it and apply it to their own cultures. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for the work that you do. It, it's been so fascinating to learn your work and also to be here with you, Natasha. So very inspiring. Maybe one final question for me, and then we'll turn to the audience here. So curious, if someone is hoping to make a documentary film, maybe a short film, maybe it's their first time, just like it was your first time writing this book and you gave us some really insightful answers on how you went about learning how to write the book. How would you direct someone who is about to shoot their first documentary film? Maybe it's self-funded. What sort of questions would you recommend they ask themselves? What sort of considerations, any resources you'd point them to? Well, I talk to a lot of young filmmakers now, and I think the most important thing is to do the work, to go and film. And the barriers to filmmaking have been lowered so much now with digital cameras and editing on your computer at home. It's like night and day, you know, before when we had film first and then you had these huge expensive cameras and then, you know, beta cams and you had to edit on analog systems. So I do think that the entry points have lowered. And even if it starts small and you make something smaller, you can do that. It doesn't cost a lot of money. But then the real, I think, the hurdle to get over is your own fear because you think, oh, you know, I'm not good enough or whatever it is. It's just, it's very difficult to get over that hurdle. But there are so many more platforms that need video now and more opportunities for young filmmakers to enter festivals and get support from, you know, for women directors. None of this stuff existed when I started. And so I think there are a lot of avenues that people can look at to create something and then look for support. It's much harder to ask for help if you don't have something to show. So it does take that first effort to take the camera and shoot it or borrow the camera from, you know, if you were either a friend or if you're in college using the equipment at whatever college you're at and making something initially. Because I think there's no other way in. Nobody lets you in. <laughs> it's it's really a question of you are creating something and then showing it to people and they see what you have to say. They see what's unique about what you're creating. Great advice. Thank you so much, Natasha. Any final requests, asks of us? Obviously, go get the book. Anything else we can do to help support you? That's so nice of you to ask, Matt. I really appreciate it. This was really great speaking with all of you. And, you know, it's such a treat. And I I just would say, you know, tell people about the book. I have the same situations that everybody has with trying to get people to read the book. It's it's always challenging. So spreading the word would be great. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Oh, well, we loved it. And yeah, thank you. Thank you so, so much. I'm going to share a link. We got a couple links to the book. If you're in the US, UK, where is it? I saw it in my local bookstore in the US, which was fun. It's in the UK. Is it global or is it just UK and US right now? It's going to be published in Germany in November. And I did a bunch of talks in other countries, in Italy and France, but they have only the English version. So yeah, I'm not sure where else. It takes time to work its way through as far as I understand. But as I said, I'm I'm a first time author, so <laughs> I'm not sure I understand the process. Well, you're kicking butt first time out the gate, Natasha. So well done with this book. It's won some awards as well. It's great reviews. All right. Thank you, Natasha and Marty, for bringing Natasha into our life and world. All right, everyone. We'll see you soon. Until next time. Cheers. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to the London Writers Salon podcast. If you enjoyed our chat and you'd like to join us for the next one, please visit londonwriterssalon.com for more information on how to become a member. As a member, you will have access to our interview archive, to our workshops, and our cozy online writing community. 
whatever kind of writer you are, it is an excellent place to make new creative connections and focus on your craft. And if you struggle to find time to write, you're welcome to write with us at our daily Writer's Hour writing sessions. It runs Monday to Friday, four times a day, and all you need is the desire to write, something to write with, and something to cheers us with. We think it's the world's best virtual co-writing space for writers, creatives, or frankly, anyone who just needs to get some work done. Visit writershour.com to sign up and join us. Until we write again. Mm-hmm.